Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't keep a dependency in place for the sake of collaboration. Sure. I would rather have collaboration across um, very distinct service boundaries. Yeah. Um, and so if I need a dependency to foster collaboration, I've just, I've got two problems. I got yeah, a collaboration yeah. problem and I have a dependency problem. And, you know, and it's like, and yeah, you get this argument that, you know, some dependencies are just necessary, yeah. but, but I do think that this idea of runtime versus build time, interdependence versus dependence versus codependence. Yeah. Like, I think there's something in that metaphor too, because, because yes, it's like there are inevitable relationships between objects and complex systems. Okay. That is unavoidable. That is different than the kind of the runtime dependencies, excuse me, build time dependencies that we're talking about. Like we self-impose dependencies all the time. Like we make things connect via requirement that don't have to connect if we just thought about the requirements differently. We introduce dependencies between teams when we do simple things like share QA people between two teams, right? And right. I know if we're agile, it's like maybe we don't need dedicated QA. We're all doing testing on our own. I get it, right? I'm not being dogmatic. In reality, most organizations have QA people, right? So mm -hmm. it's like if I'm, if I'm putting QA people on both teams versus having a shared QA component, I've created a dependency organizationally. Sure. Right? If I've, if I've um, you know, separated the software by layer and nothing can be delivered, not even stubbed out or toggled on and off. It all has to be delivered and tested simultaneously. Then, then I've created a dependency that I don't believe any gain in collaboration would be worth the cost of that dependency in terms of my business operations. Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. Mike Kottmeyer is back. Mike, thank you for taking time out of the beginning of your Memorial Day weekend. <laughs> I was, I was going to say beginning of my morning. Um, it's five o'clock on a Friday. Memorial Day. And I've been on camera recording and on Zoom calls all day long. So, yeah, let's see. I actually have like a vein or something pop. Uh, maybe it's a shadow or something. Okay, cool. <laughs> Mysteriously Sorry. popping out of Mike's head from Zoom exposure. Um, oh, what we're going to talk about, so a couple, I guess a week or so ago, um, yeah. our marketing team or somebody in our marketing team asked some questions of the internet. What are the most controversial tweets? Well, no. So what happened? What happened was... <laughs> Can't even um, keep it straight in my head. Yeah, I, I guess it's been a long day. So, um, so what I do... I, every, every week I do, um, I do a content brief and it, and it becomes like fodder for podcasts and videos and stuff like that. So I actually spend a minute or two thinking about this stuff. And, and the other day I was, um, I was in this situation where I couldn't get anything out of my head. So I ended up writing like what is, is ultimately going to be like 23 tweets. And I thought they were kind of neat. And, um, so we haven't decided how we're going to do that yet, but anyway, I posted them on our internal Slack channel. Um, kind of our chief architect around here, a guy named Kevin Smith. Um, put them into chat GPT and he said, you know, rank these in order of controversy and then take the top 10 of them and, in, and rebut them is what he did. And so we started going through that list. So this is our second, this is actually, we're becoming, it's yes. becoming a series, Dave. Yes. This is our the second most all controversial tweet. All right. Yeah. Dependencies kill agility. You either have to manage dependencies or break dependencies. The more dependencies you choose to keep, the less agile you will be. It's impossible to move with agility when everything is connected to everything else. That's and true. 
In response to that, ChatGPT said, when dependencies may pose challenges to agility, they can also foster collaboration and synergy. It's about managing dependencies effectively, not eliminating them outright. That was a pretty thoughtful response, actually. Yeah, well, that was the thing that blew me away is that they were all thoughtful. Most of them are really wrong. But they were, but they were thoughtful because I mean I think the best ChatGPT he can do is reflect the common thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so the second half of that was kind of in the space of you have to manage them when they exist, which is hundred percent true, right? So I would always say that you have to either manage dependencies or break dependencies. You just can't mm-hmm. ignore them. And and the beef that I have with um, with some of the agile community sometimes is that the methodologies we we create, don't respect dependencies, and they don't treat them as first order concerns. And so they either, they're either, the belief is that they'll either be self-organized right. out of the system. Um, in practice, the, the, they tend to be identified and resolved late, and it causes instability of velocity. It causes um, incomplete features. Um, and so they're, they're, they're very difficult, right? So the, the, the one thing I, I really disagreed with was the idea that dependencies foster collaboration. Um, yeah, sure. I guess like, yeah, I gotta, I gotta collaborate with you to work it out. But I, I you know, to me, I don't, I, it doesn't like, well, it's an opportunity for collaboration. Like argument, so. Could, I, I think in the same way that if in a Kanban board, when stuff gets jammed up, it's an opportunity for the team to swarm on something. Um, I mean, they have that opportunity anyway. They don't have to wait for a dependency to occur to collaborate. Well, but. So it was interesting, right? So, so we, so yeah, I have a lot of really smart people that work in leading agile, and I was I was talking with one of the guys on our studios team, and he made a distinction, um, which which I usually communicate a little bit differently because I'm not a developer, but he he talked about the idea of runtime versus build time dependencies. Okay. And and the distinction was basically like if I have a dependency, I don't know. This is probably like maybe maybe not the right way to say it. So I'm on thin ice here. But like that's going to prevent me from compiling the software. Okay. okay? Um, or or let's say I um, code something around the API and I break the data model in the database. Okay. Um, like there's there's dependencies that are like architecturally problematic. Sure. And then he makes the distinction between the, 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 the build time versus the runtime. And so as I understand runtime, like a runtime dependency is like, if I have like a front end that relies on an API, mm-hmm. I can, I can develop those separately and manage it through like stubs and feature toggles and things like that. So I can sure. make them architecturally independent from a build perspective, but when okay. they run, you know, They're both halves have to be together in order to get the full blown functionality. And okay. if I don't have the back half, then I have to toggle the front half off. Something sure. like that, right? And, okay. and and I think it's important, right? So I probably have some developers here losing their mind, but I'm, I'm not largely talking to developers, <laughs> right? Um, but that's not going to stop talk- you anyway. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm largely talking to scrum masters and leaders and things like this. And, and so we have to understand what we mean. And so a lot yeah. of times I'll make a distinction because I'm a Stephen Covey guy of the idea of dependence versus interdependence. And, okay. and it's like, and, and like in that, like, so my wife and I are a parenting team. I am an independent human being and I am perfectly capable totally on my own. If I had to parent my kids by myself, I could. 
My wife is a perfectly capable human being. If she had to parent the kids by herself, she absolutely could. We are independent people. Yep. But we have a interdependent relationship in mm-hmm. the sense that we rely on each other in real time to be able to um, parent our kids better. Sure. And so I am independent and I choose interdependence yep. with my spouse. Okay. Now, so, so a, <clears throat> oh, I got one. This is interesting. My, my brain just connected an interesting dot. So a, so a, a build time dependency would be like codependence. I can't okay. be okay unless you're okay. All right. <laughs> that's a late Friday, but that's actually, I think kind of true, right? So you have sure. the idea of, of independence, interdependence yeah. and codependence. Okay. And in a, in a build time dependency is a codependence, which is typically, I think, generalized unhealthy because I need to be okay even if you're not okay, right? Yeah. And, you know, if you've, if you've had anybody in your family or friend group that's, like, dealt with addiction, like, that's a big thing, right? Mm-hmm. Because, like, as a human, like, I tend to – like, I'm so dependent on that other person's well-being. I enable, I enable, I enable, I enable, I enable until, until like, they're, it, they hit rock bottom kind of a deal. Yeah. So, so in, in like family recovery kinds of things, they talk about the idea of you have to be, you know, we want to break these codependent patterns. I think there's actually something there. I think I'm thinking that too, because there's also the behaviors you learn as part of a a family with that kind of dysfunction. Everybody takes on a certain role and within the organizations, teams, aspects of the system, they learn to work in a constrained way. That's hard to unlearn. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually that's actually really interesting. Look I, at us. I knew I this was going to go this, this, deep, in this direction. Yeah, no, it's cool. Yeah, there's something to unpack there. I think I'm going to probably spend a weekend thinking about that, right? That's pretty cool. So, so I had somebody today in a lean coffee bring up a question that I wasn't really sure how to answer. So I'm going to okay. I'm going to share this with you and it's tied to this. Um, we did a lean coffee and it's a person that works in, a, in an organization with a lot of legacy systems okay. that are heavily dependent upon one another. You can't touch anything without affecting everything else. Classic. And they're really struggling with building new stuff at the same yeah. time as trying to deal with the technical debt and, and all yeah. that. And she was asking, how should you split the large legacy system into more manageable domains? Okay. So the uh, best I figured this was going to be a nice no, meaty no, no, no. steak is, for you to take perfect. on. This is like okay. right in the space that that has my brain noodling around because, gosh, I could like fork this in like 10 different directions. So I'm going to give like the simple answer and then we'll see where it goes. And I'm going to say the okay. simple answer. I'm going to point it in a simple direction. So one of the things that, that we talk about, and this is the guidance that I give to our teams and to our clients, when we go in to an early stage transformation, we'll usually do a phase we call define the end state. And to some degree, almost every client that calls us has some version of this problem. And the way I'll describe it is we will take, we'll look at the business architecture, like a heat map of the business capabilities. Okay. We'll look at like, you know, again, I don't know if this is the right term exactly, like the product model hierarchy. Like we want to look at like the product decomposition um, kind of framework. And we'll look at the org design and we'll look at the technology architecture. And the way I've often described it is like an ideal scrum team is when I get as much alignment between those four views as I can. Mm-hmm. If I can get a, you think about it, like a, a business problem with a dedicated team, mm-hmm. ideally organized around a product that, um, that has encapsulated technology, 
that is that's that's in effect a technical definition of a scrum sure. team, right? Yep. And and when I have dependencies between that object and the rest of the software architecture, then I have a dependency I either have to break or I have to manage, mm-hmm. right? And and to some degree, you know, a, a runtime, excuse me, a, a build time dependency would be way more complicated than a runtime dependency. And what she's describing are are build time dependencies. Okay. Because they have, in effect, a monolith. They're not organized around a decoupled kind of open architectural system. Mm-hmm. And so when they change one thing, it breaks a bunch of other things. So they're trying to add new features in while they're repairing defects and, and refactoring right. this code, right? Yep. And so and – so, And they can't prioritize within they can't their own prioritize, system. Right? Yeah. So, so the one thing – I'm a pretty strong believer in this, and this is, again, I think part of the problem of when you don't install Scrum with a awareness of the architectural and structural implications and you're doing it from a ground-up perspective right. where you don't have the support of the organization to fix it. The answer to this person's question – and this is some new language for me. So I, I mentioned that we use this idea of business capability modeling. Mm-hmm. Well, I was I had my studio in town last Friday and we were talking about that concept. And, and one of like my senior guys, a guy named James Hester, said something about like what you're really talking about is domain driven design. Mm-hmm. And I went, interesting, like tell me more. But so he explored this idea of domains and and you know, James wanted to go into kind of a semantic argument with me over, you know, domains mean something and it's really relevant and we should use the word domain. And I'm like, yeah, I don't care. It's fine. But you should explain, what, what do you well, mean when you say domain-driven design? Well, like a domain, right? So so I'm, I'm, it's kind of a new concept to me, but what I'm anchoring into is is basically we want our software organized around business problems. So domain, okay. business domain, okay. right? We want our software organized around business domain. That is another way of saying that I want my technology architecture and my business capabilities to be in alignment. Mm-hmm. So, so I was testing with my organization this week. I said, what if, cause, because you, you see my, my challenge that I have is like, I'm not trying to convince developers to do the right thing most of the time right? and trying to get them to understand. I'm trying to get business leaders to understand the importance of creating the right conditions so that mm-hmm. the developers can do the right thing. Right. And, and that requires a different a different language, like it's a different set of metaphors yeah. that you have to do, right? And so when I was uh, testing a hypothesis and I said, okay, so what if I said this to be true? Because business people often understand the idea of business architecture. Mm-hmm. Often we go into a company and we say, have you ever had Deloitte or McKinsey or you know whatever come in and do a business architecture of your organization? And they walk to the old dusty binder, they pull it off, and I've got pages and pages and pages of business capability models, right? Yeah. I mean, I joke, right? But it's like that's what they have, right? Right. But they don't know what to do with it. They yeah. don't know what to do with it. But they understand that this is a representation of the capabilities that the business has. Okay. And, and so now I've got the developer community saying, mm-hmm. okay, we understand this thing called domain-driven design. And so I say, okay, cool. So what if I said – to business people sit at the table and the developers and architects sitting at the other side of the table. And I said, look, what I want you to do is I want your business architecture mm-hmm. to overlay your domain driven design. So the business capabilities you identify on this side map to the domains sure. that are driven on this side. Would that be true? And, you know, again, like everything in technology and business, it's nuanced and probably requires a lot of conversation. But I think in general, 
that should be true. So right? you're saying that they should – this is the part where I'm trying to like mm-hmm. track with you. You're yeah. saying they should line up. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I guess the question I'm asking is like, they okay, don't. so – they, they don't. don't. They, what, they don't. What is the win there? What do you get out of that? Well, so, what I'm, so what I'm suggesting, and this is this is debate we always get into, right? So the people that come to your class do not have the agency to make these changes. Correct. They've been given permission to do Scrum. And and I will tell you, right? And this or is to a, take a class is, in how to do Scrum. Well, this is a transient pattern, right? So one of the things that, that I'll go deep into my teams with sometimes, it's like, like when you're getting started in a transformation – Mm-hmm. You can identify an idealized end state. I could do using this words. I could do the business architecture, and I could do the domain-driven design. I could mm-hmm. overlay them, but to get started, often, you know, we're dealing with layers and technology yeah. and different things, right? It's so these are these are hard problems to solve right out of the gate. Mm-hmm. But in order to achieve really the <clears throat> benefits of it, then um, it really must happen over time. Yeah. So sometimes, so sometimes, and this this might be the, the a first step, is that you'll organize around those components where it's not overlaid, and then mm-hmm. but you have to orchestrate across those layers, right? And that yeah. is a suboptimal place to be, right? And so the strategy of transformation is say, okay, cool, I can actually get some business agility, mm-hmm. and this is where like this is where like you manage dependencies or you break dependencies. So if I if I organize in a way that is suboptimal, I'm not organized around business capabilities or domains, and I'm organized around some layering um, that's already in the existing architecture, or I'm leveraging what the teams are already formed around. Right. Well, then I have to put in a orchestration layer because any feature is going to require user stories across different layers or components within the system. Okay. And and the way that you can create agility out of that is you get those layers or components to reduce their batch size, right? So they're delivering more frequently. And then you get the features smaller, so they're delivering more frequently. Mm-hmm. And you take the feature, you decompose it in the stories, it goes out to all the different people, <coughs> teams, and then it rolls up and then the feature moves. And there's some integration testing. Is that agile? No, it's not agile. Like it's not well, what we're supposed to do. But it's but it is a way of achieving agility in the presence of a suboptimal organization. So, in this suboptimal approach, I'm assuming that there are plenty of instances where that's the battle you choose to fight. Because, given all the other stuff that's going on, like this is the easiest way through for right now, and we'll fix it later. But that we're well, just going to well, maybe maybe or maybe not. Right. So so one of the things you know it's really hard to articulate because if you have an organization that's in total chaos. Mm-hmm. And you want to move them. Um, and for the record, I'm just going to drop a, a phrase that I don't think we've defined. Is like, you know, sometimes we get into this world where somebody wants to create a product-driven organization. Well, what's a product-driven organization? Well, it's basically one where you have the business capabilities aligned with the domains, mm-hmm. and you create encapsulation, and you create funding for that particular set of business problems. Right. right. So a product driven organization basically organizes around products and funds products and those products can release independently. And yes. and so and so what, what you find is that if you're really serious about this and, and again, like, you know, Dave, it's like I'm always in this place where I'm not really talking to how to help make scrum masters lives easier. 
-hmm. Like the result of what I talk about will make scrum masters lives easier. It'll actually make them sane, right? It'll make it rational. It'll make scrum make sense to them. But, but what I'm fundamentally talking to are business leaders that want to operate with greater agility. Mm -hmm. They need to put things into market faster. Um, They might be in the middle of a cloud migration. They might be, um, in the middle of trying to figure out which parts of their system they can onshore or offshore. Mm-hmm. You know, they have real business problems that they're trying to do. They're trying to maximize value density and throughput and do it in an economically responsible way. But they're sitting on top of these legacy monoliths um, yeah. and poor organizational design, and they think Agile is going to solve a problem, and it's not. What happened, man? I got like the top of your head on my screen. Sorry, I'm making a note. Oh, that's okay. It was like all of a <laughs> no, sudden, I want to ask a finish, follow-up right? question about this, and I just it's had okay. to make a note. I didn't realize no, it went it's good, off right? camera. You so, don't like the top so of my head? So what we're doing, right? So what we're doing is we're saying, look, if you have a if you have something like a gigantic cloud migration initiative, yeah. or you're going through some, you know, maybe that's part of some digital transformation strategy. Yeah. And you're trying to figure out how to create dynamic digital capabilities into your marketplace. Yeah. And I have a legacy monolith that I can't change anything without breaking 10 other things. Right. There is nothing inherently. And this is, we're just going back to our core thread that we always talk about. There's nothing inherently in Scrum that will solve that problem unless unless you organized in a way that you organize around products and then somehow that team could decouple themselves from the rest of the enterprise. But that just doesn't happen in practice. Well, so I want to ask a question about this. So we got that monolith and all the developers are like, this monolith is the problem. It's the root of all evil. Yeah. The executives like cloud computing, digital transformation. Like those are big, exciting things and, and fixing the, thing that you're saying sucks that we've been using it this way forever but but here's the thing but here's the thing cloud migration digital transformation is this okay right it is this right and so so again it always comes back to what is the benefit that you're looking for right so if you're Mm -hmm. if you're moving into a cloud environment and what you're going for is, I just want to use their servers instead of my servers. Mm-hmm. Okay, right? I can take my monolith, I can move it to the cloud. I think they, I got turned on. I'm kind of exploring some of these ideas out in the open, and so hopefully I don't sound like a dumbass. But, um, but it's like, it's like, it's cloud. Like, what do they call it? Cloud enabled. Mm-hmm. Right? I can take my monolith, I can move it to the cloud. It's cloud enabled. It's in the cloud. It's got some benefits of being in the cloud. Right. It's not cloud native. Right. You didn't build it to work in the cloud. At the other extreme, you have like a microservices architecture mm-hmm. that based upon performance, demand, things like that, you can scale them up, you can scale them down. We can have other instances. We can have fallback. We can have a sure. bunch of different things, right? It can be very dynamic. You get all the benefits of being in the cloud. And so, and so if you're truly going through a digital transformation, you're truly going through a cloud migration, like what you should really do is you should, you should what we were talking about, look at your business architecture. Yeah. Look at your domain-driven design. Overlap them, create an extraction um, strategy for decoupling them, wrap them in tests, make them modular, move them, those, you know, containers up into the cloud, right? And, and make it more of a cloud native solution. Yeah. And, and, so, and so this thing I've been talking about systems first, then practices and culture, like I'm learning how to talk about it differently. So, so maybe people will hear me differently. 
and it gets into just what we're saying. It's like there there is no way to be agile. There is no way to yeah. to be more digital. There is no way to be more open if if we're dealing in monoliths. Mm-hmm. There's not. And and there are plenty of scenarios where it doesn't make sense. Maybe your product's into life. Maybe it's not a strategic capability. Um, it's not worth the investment of the time or the risk to mm-hmm. um, to break it into its components or services and to move it into the cloud. Like, cool, that's fine. Like, don't do it. Yeah. But but you can't do you can't do lean startup in that environment. You can't do something that's inherently team based and requires decoupled teams. Well, I, have, so, I have a great example. Can yeah. I share an example? So yeah, one please. of the, the clients that I work with, um, they've been on a transformation journey for like seven years. And yeah, I think we talked about this one. This one. They yeah. they purchased another company. Yeah. Um, it's a financial institution. They mm-hmm. purchased another place that had full continuous integration, continuous deployment, releasing like all day I long. I bet you they drugged them into their abyss, didn't they? They had to shut it all down because yeah. the rest of the organization yeah. couldn't cope with the change. Yeah. And there's no yeah. way to know like what's going to happen downstream. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like it's literally the the dependencies are what has stalled out their agile transformation. Right. Yeah, so so what you do and so so if so if you had if if that acquired company had like fully distributed systems, containerized microservices in the cloud, and again I'm on the on the edge of of my technical understanding of this. Um, and what you what I might do is I might say, okay, let's let's look at the domain driven design of that of that solution. Let's let's overlay a business capability model to it. Let's look at the business capability model of the legacy organization. Right. Let's hypothesize a domain-driven design of that. And then at some point, there's some sort of like, um, like technology rationalization that has to start to happen. Which capabilities do we want to host where? Which, you know, but, but it gets such a complex topic to talk about casually like this. But, but it's like, there's no amount, again, I just keep going back to, there's no amount of scrum that's going to do that for you. Sure. I mean, those systems have to be engineered to operate with well, this low orchestration, high encapsulation kind of strategy. I think where I keep coming back to is like, I mean, I don't think a lot of people would dispute what you're saying, but when they want to wave their arms and have the world be different, well, sending people that. off to training is faster and easier than like, naive. let's spend five years fixing our technical debt. That's you spend five years fixing it if you want to be relevant in five years. Like, I mean, this is probably a bad metaphor, but um, I live in Atlanta. And if you've driven through Atlanta two in the morning, eight in the morning, noon, it's like our traffic is hell here. Um, probably Sucks. on par with New York or LA, maybe a little bit better, but not a whole lot. Right. Um, and so, uh, I happen to have a really good friend who runs traffic for the state of Georgia and, and they're doing this major interchange, um, where Georgia 400 intersects I-285 on the North end. And what's crazy is that they're doing this gigantic thing and they believe in 10 years that it will be on par with the capacity that the city will need in 10 years. And so they're making these billions of dollars of investment just to keep up, just to keep up. Now, I don't know what you would do, right? I don't know how you would build for the 10 years after that or whatever. Maybe you yeah. should, maybe you shouldn't. 
I don't know, but do you really a, need more people living in Atlanta? Oh gosh, I man! It's like I, 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 maybe I'm part of the problem. I got here 25 years ago, but um, yeah. you know, at least my my kids are, are for the most part native born, <laughs> so they can say they were born here. But um, but hold on. So right yeah. now, if I'm thinking of the right stretch of road, when I'm on yeah. on 85 going on a 400, that's like a two lane ramp. I mean, that's not yeah, a yeah. So so what happens is 85 like Atlanta's like a circle. And so the point where 400 splits off, I think it splits off and goes like this, but it splits yeah. off from 85. Yeah. Um, basically, 400 goes due north and um, 85 comes out at about like two or three o'clock. But that's the part where the traffic gets better when I get on 400. No, it depends on time of day. Depends okay. on time of day. You know, so um, coming from downtown about to 285, because 285 is a nightmare both directions Always. about that time. And then and then once you get like outside the perimeter, it all kind of jams up because you have all the north side traffic that's merging yeah. in and everybody's heading out to the suburbs up and off right and coming Buford where I live. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But anyway, so it's like so getting back to our, our systems metaphor, like the companies that don't make these investments, they're not going to be able to keep up. They're not going to be able to respond to change. They're not going to be able to take their systems and modernize them. They're not going okay. to. Right. Or they're going to keep having to have these compensating things that never really fix the problem. And it just gets it's like when somebody gets older, oh, sure. and they have to start taking medicine for one thing and then you need something to fix that medicine yeah. and then another medicine to yeah. fix that medicine. Yeah, there's some truth to that. Right. And, and you know, again, like the you know, it's like I, I've read some articles recently where people are getting tired of the metaphor of technical debt. But but I think there's some truth to it. So it's like it's like if I make hundred thousand dollars a year and but i'm living a hundred and forty thousand dollar a year life style and and so i'm accumulating forty thousand dollars of debt every year in order to in order to pay down that debt i not i not only have to go back to a hundred thousand dollars a year i have to reduce by forty thousand to start paying off the debt and because i'm accumulating interest probably even more than that mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the problem that a lot of companies are facing is that they've been living on debt for so long and their apparent throughput through the system is, is actually, you know, ironically higher than, than it, it probably would have been otherwise. Okay. And so, and so, yeah, some of these companies have some hard decisions to make, right? And, and what I think you have to kind of do is like when you come in and you do that, that business capability modeling and the domain-driven design – like what you have to do is you have to economically prioritize which capabilities are the right capabilities to extract, which are going to be the highest levers, which need to change the yeah. most. And, you know, in our four quadrants model, I, I do predictable, adaptable, emergent, convergent. And so I have this idea of predictive convergent. That's kind of like Gartner mode one, things that um, need to be very stable and predictable. And then in the upper right, you have like Gartner mode two, which is the stuff that's more like lean startup, incredibly experimental. And we kind of draw this base camp journey, base camp one, two, three, four, five. And we articulate a change management strategy to take it from one to the other. Sure. Most of the companies, most of the large companies we, we go into, you know, roughly 60%, let's say, um, can stay in that lower left quadrant. Legacy monoliths. Um, yeah, you're going to do some agile. You're going to do some, some lean program and portfolio right. management. But it's going to feel like largely incremental and iterative um, plan-driven work mm-hmm. because there's so many dependencies. Those dependencies have to be orchestrated. Okay. And there's going to be some set of capabilities that are going to be highly strategic that you're going to want to extract out 
and make them incredibly resilient and high performing. Okay. And then some subset of that might need to change business model and say, okay, you're going to be really experimental and go take over the world. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes this is actually something we see kind of commonly is that you might have like a more legacy organization and they go and they do something off to the side and, and it's really successful. And then they've got to figure out how to bring it back into the more standard operating model that's more legacy. Like that's kind of an interesting set of problems too. Sure. But, but again, it's like, it's like, um, one of the things that's rolling around in my head a lot, and, and I'm probably just going to talk about it out in the open until somebody tells me either I've got the wrong stuff or I'm not <laughs> thinking about it the right way. Okay. But, but there's like this, I think it's a DOD spec. Um, I, I got introduced to it through a client we had. It was a government contractor, um, came through an Air Force requirement for Agile Open Digital in the military. And I, and I think that's, a, as I've really thought about that, I think that's a really neat model because what what all of these companies are trying to do or the military is trying to do is to make a more modular, more open mm -hmm. um, product architecture, right? It's kind of similar to what like Tesla and SpaceX are doing with how they're building products. So right. you, have a, you have an open modular architecture that's surrounded by tests. You start to have the idea of digital twins. Right. The, uh, the, you have continuous integration, continuous deployment on a service bus. The hardware can iterate dynamically based upon new things we're learning and feedback. Sure. Um, and it can iterate indefinitely under configuration management. And as long as it's passing the t integration tests between the two. Yeah. Um, and you start to create this world where, where um, the hardware is soft. But in, in, in these worlds, the existing manufacturing, the existing assembly lines are not going to accommodate this kind of agile open digital specification. It's going to require a total rethinking of not only the existing architecture of the current hardware, but it's going to require a, a, a different mindset and methodology, a different approach to how you govern the flow of work across these things. Okay. So I had um, some of my team um, over to my house um, last Monday and Tuesday, uh, Jess and her husband, Morris, some really, really smart um, people on our, on, our, on our consulting team, MIT graduates. And we were talking about like agile open digital. And it was kind of like, it was almost like a structure governance and metrics kind of a thing. Okay. And, and so what's starting to happen, right? So you're starting to see the hardware companies, some of them, start to catch on and realize we have to make our hardware softer, right? We have to make our, the way that we build sure. machines more adaptive. More and, agile. And we're starting to see examples where we're rethinking the manufacturing process from the ground up with an eye towards this open, digital, agile kind of methodology. And it's okay. funny because all of that came out of the software world but but the the legacy software makers right. are struggling for the same reason the legacy manufacturers are struggling okay. because and it's easy to understand in a manufacturing context because I have assembly lines and heavy equipment and supply chains and right. things that are very physical and they have like hard dollar investments and they're they're very they're difficult to change. They, they, they really can't be changed. They almost have to be replaced. Sure. And, but on the software side, software is theoretically easier to change, 
but it becomes so entrenched and so expensive to change. It's almost like the same thing of like, as hardware, yeah. you know, I have to take my, my, I have to replace my, my plant, my assembly plant in Flint, Michigan or something like that. And I've got to yeah. like, I got to rebuild a new assembly plant. And to some degree, like if you're going to do it, it has to be worth it. Yeah. Right. It has to be economically viable to do that. And, but so I'm in this space, like, I think there's a ton of thinkers out there. Like, like, as I dig into this, there's so many people out there that are talking about aspects of the problem. Mm-hmm. And, and I think in aggregate, the knowledge to understand this is here. Like I'm, I'm constantly referencing some videos that Joe Justice did around Tesla and SpaceX. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about like what the military is doing with that agile open digital DOD spec. Um, you know, I'm looking at like some of the things our clients are experimenting with. So things are doing well and things that they're doing not well. And, and, I, and I think the information is there. I was, um, I'm going to lose the guy's name. Um, Dave Hackett, that sounds right. Uh, the guy wrote the Continuous Delivery book. Um, him and Jez Husband or something. Like I'm starting to get – I'm probably getting this all mixed up. So I should I'll look it up while sure. you're talking. You know, but, um, but I started watching some of his videos this week. And around the, the core principles behind continuous deployment. And I'm just like agile, open digital, right? It's all the same things. And, and we have to realize it gets underneath this idea that I've been talking about for a long time, or a t- long time. I've been talking about a long time, but I've been kind of on it for the last month or so. The idea of like, what are the preconditions? We can say we want full stack teams. We can say we want continuous deployment. We can say that we want, you know, red green refactor we want all these different things we want to do scrum we want to do daily stand-ups we want to do small batches and and sprint planning and but it's like but if this if the systems underneath either physically or process wise can't do it don't support it yeah like it doesn't it's it's doesn't do anything the the example i was using and i know you've seen this all over the place like if i went into a legacy organization i'm not even talking about the software just the org design I have the analysts, the designers, the builders, the testers, deployers, and vertical silos. And I have project managers running waterfall plans. And I have do all the analysis, all the design, all the build, all the tests, all the deploy. Sure. And I say, I want to start doing Scrum. And don't change anything about that organization or its operating model. What people start to do is they start to have analysis sprints, design sprints, build sprints, test sprints, deployment sprints, right? (laughs) Like... And you, and you sit there and you look at that and you go, okay, cool. Like, like if, if you want to do that, do that. If it helps you sure. collaborate better and make things more transparent, like sure, like all day long. But it misses the whole point of why one might want to do Scrum. Well, okay. Right? It's so, not about doing Scrum. It's about the fact that I have a potentially shippable increment. And there's yeah. nothing in applying Scrum to a waterfall world that, that creates a potentially shippable increment at the end of every sprint. Okay. A, 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 a couple user stories worth of design artifacts is not potentially shippable. Like the idea that you're going to potentially ship a partially done amount of analysis, like, like, no, okay, maybe. helpful for anyone. Yeah, it's so I want right? to ask you a couple questions. Kind of what we're trying to accomplish, right? So, first, the book you reference is called "Continuous Delivery" by Jez Humble and David Farley. Farley, um, that was a Hackett. Uh, you know what's interesting is that there's a client we have that have a Farley and a Hackett. I kind of mix. So, Dave Farley. Okay, so apologize, Dave. I don't know um, Dave, but um, and I apologize to him. Anyway. You said something. This might be a bit of a tangent, but I want to mm-hmm. I want to poke at it. The information is there. 
people know okay. we yeah. should do things. They know they should deal with their technical debt and decouple mm-hmm. their systems. We know we should do something about the environment. People we know in the, all these people things in the industry know these things. Well, it's I mean, not just as the human yeah. race as a species right now has information about a bunch of stuff it should 100%. do, but we're all just like, yeah, 100%. but you know what? I'm going to yeah. go watch Netflix. Well, so, well, so sure, right? So, I mean, there is an element of it's complacency. Like, well, well, it's complacency. Well, so I'm going to be a little bit more nuanced than that. I, I was actually thinking about this the other day. It's like, it's like I don't think people can envision a world past their current constraints. Yeah. Right. Or they current can't generation past yeah. their current constraints. Um, this is all my job pays. This is the way my family acts. Yeah. This is the way my metabolism works. This right. is, um, you know, the nature of my commute. I mean, this is how I was brought up. I mean, we just look at what's around us. And, and, and I think there's few people that are in sufficient positions of power mm-hmm. with the appropriate resources that want to make a sufficient difference to integrate all of this knowledge into a system right that will actually work right i mean because you get into this situation it's like at the lower end of the hierarchy you have people with insufficient purview mm-hmm. and um and an inability to affect change at a broad level so you get to the top let me finish this one thought right you get to the top and you have people that are, that, that are really fundamentally managing a different set of concerns, right? They're trying to manage the macroeconomics of the company. They're, it's probably more political. You think the average CIO, I don't know if this is still true, but it used to be like 16 months, 18 yeah. months. And it's like, how much change can I enact on this system? How much runway do I have? Can I put this company on a seven-year journey to refactor its yeah. platforms and do it right? You know, I don't know, right? It's like the people, the people at the the team level see the problems and know what needs to be done from where they are. The people that are upstairs that can actually have the power to make the decisions are either comfortable or thinking about problems that are not the same problems as the people downstairs. They don't see the value in their concerns. Well, I I tell this story. I tell this story about my son's fiance's father. We were heading to, we've become really good friends with them. We were heading to, they're LSU people, and we were heading to Baton Rouge for a football game. And I, I don't know how we got on talking this. I was talking with him about technical debt. He's like a chief revenue officer. Right. And, and, and he was just like, basically, like, he didn't really understand what technical debt was. And the teams were using it. He thought he kind of knew. He had anchored it to something else. He didn't really know. Mm-hmm. And so that's the reason why I was making the case earlier. It's like, it's like the developers have an understanding and the business people have an understanding. It's like somehow, and in this case of business capability versus domain-driven design, I think we're largely talking about the same thing. But but I think what happens is that they see that and they look at their legacy monoliths and go, well, like, I don't know how to change that. Right? Yeah, it's too and big so, to change. Yeah, and so the it's so it's like so I think there's a couple of problems. Like the people on the lower side of the organization, it's like, you know, there's like a joke. That, that we're on the receiving end a lot. It's like, what do they say? Like a consultant, like 
takes your watch, tells you the time and sells it back to you or something like that, you know? <laughs> it depends. Um, and there's this, there's this joke that, you know, it's like, you know, consultants come in and they ask you everything that's wrong and they put in a report to your management, all the things that are wrong. And you have to pay somebody a couple million dollars in order yeah. to be listened to. And, and there's, there's some truth to that. Right. But it's like, yeah. what I generally find is that, um, the ability to storytell and contextualize and make right. business relevant is a is a um, is a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And and so so part of it is is that you almost have to connect to like a business driver, uh, a burning platform. Like, yeah, we want to move this um, software to the a cloud. problem to solve. Yeah. Yeah. We have a, we have a burning platform. We need to get out of local servers. You want to go to the cloud. We want to do it in the most scalable way. We anticipate mm-hmm. growth, all these things. Like what must we do to do that? Well, and then you can almost think about like backing into domain driven design, business capability, modeling that analysis. And you go, well, I can't move this to the cloud with all these dependencies. So what must I do to extract this capability, this domain out? So it has, no, no build time dependencies, mm-hmm. right? It can have the runtime dependencies, but it can't have the build time dependencies. It can't have any codependence, right? Sure. And so then you work yourself back to that and then you do the product extraction work and then the containerization, then you move it to the cloud and now you have that object in the cloud, right? And so, but it's like, like I have a, I have a paper in me I've been noodling on. Um, I Googled it and I don't think anybody's written what I have in my head, all those similar titles, something to the effect of like what, what software execs really need to know about software architecture or what executives really need to know about software architecture okay. relative to organizational design. The few papers that I saw that were titled something similar was kind of like, yeah, if I wanted my um, executives to know kind of what I did for a living, you know, and it was like, it was way too technical for me. Yeah. Right. But like the, 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 the really the principles of encapsulation, orchestration, dependency management, the things that we talk about, right, the impacts, like what is technical debt, the impacts to code quality, the impacts mm-hmm. to time to market, the impacts to uptime and downtime and yeah. the ability to make new changes. And, and it's like and it's like execs, I think, often, not all, but often <coughs> won't deeply understand those concepts. Right. And what happens in practice is that they're pushing money and resources and people into these organizations and making the problems worse faster, <laughs> right? No, seriously, right? It's one way. Right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm really transparent about this. In the early days of Leading Agile, I think we really did some really good work um, helping organizations deliver faster. But if the, the adjacent organizations, um, we got really good in a couple of clients and really helping them put the wrong things in the market faster. Yeah. Um, now, in my defense, I, I, I'm not a strategy consultancy. I wasn't telling them what to do. Yeah. Like I was helping them put things into market faster. What they were doing with the feedback, like, you know, that wasn't the business we were in at the time. Right. It is the business we're in now, but it's not the business we were in at the time. And so, and so all these pieces have to be, have to be wired together yeah. in order to create a, a functioning the business healthy system. Yeah. And, and that's the, that's the, that's kind of the, that's maybe the interesting pivot is we have a client that was trying to figure out, are they a services company or are they a technology company? And what, what they really kind of came on is that like they're technology enabled services. Okay. And I think a lot of companies are really like that. They're really like technology enabled services. 
And there's something that the market wants, a service that it wants to buy, and that, that's enabled with technology. Mm-hmm. And, and it's like, I think, I think this open agile digital, as, I, as I've been thinking about that, I think it applies to hardware. I think it applies to software. I think it applies to organizational design. I think it applies to process. Um, I can't think of an area where it doesn't apply. And then there's this other, I might have mentioned this earlier in the podcast, this idea of composable enterprises. Like once we have these these objects, these open objects organizationally, we can start thinking about composing them and deploying them into market in lots of different and creative ways. Mm-hmm. And you just can't, you don't have that flexibility if if everything's a monolith. You have one thing, it does a thing for a customer, a set of customers. You know, what if I had the metaphor? I was actually I was I was doing a, a more of a standalone talk with our marketing team earlier today, and something entered my head. Right, and this idea of open, like I like um like I'm, I'm doing this on a Mac, right? Um, I'm trying to think what rev of the Mac that I have here, right? But like the this rev of the Mac has like a memory card slot in it. Yep. Right. I want to be able to take a memory card, plug it in to the organization, but then take it and plug it in something else, or take somebody else's mm-hmm. card and plug it in, right? So I don't want this proprietary, hardwired stuff, right? Um, I want to be able to have a base system and add peripherals, right? And that there's something in that metaphor, right? I'm sure that somebody's going to be like, "No, Mike, that's stupid." But there's something in the metaphor if you <laughs> see leave. the truth in it, right? They'll be I'm happy still, to leave notes in the comment section. I'm, I'm still sure. working out. Well, that's I'm actually I actually have built a little system recently because um, I got really bad at replying to comments for a while, but I'm learning a lot from the client the comments, and I really appreciate them. And so I've got a function in my marketing team that when we post stuff out that I get comments, they actually link me to it so I can go and engage with people. And, and I find that that's super, it's super useful for me, and I, I really appreciate anybody that takes the time yeah. to help give me clues on how to talk about this stuff better. Because what I'm really kind of doing right now is I'm just in this really kind of highly engaged mental set where I'm just like I'm just like a sponge for stuff. And it's all synthesizing in a really nice way. But I really like this. Like the two things that are really running through my head is this idea of open agile digital and composable organizations. And at the end of the day, it comes back to this thing I've been doing for 15 years now. It's like dependencies suck. They get in the way of agility. Ooh. Look yeah. at you tying that right back in. You, man, Way I'm to like, bring it home. I was sitting here thinking, back, like, yeah. how the hell am I going to get us back? <laughs> yeah, nicely yeah. done. Yeah. I, I'm pretty good at going down rabbit holes and, and holding the thread. As I get older, every once in a while, I I kind of yeah. miss, and I'm like, what were we talking about? <laughs> that was good. <laughs> yeah. All yeah. right. Yeah. So, have we have we addressed this one sufficiently? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, so what was it? What was ChatGPT's response? It's not right? really a very val- – I mean, it says dependencies pose a challenge. They can also foster collaboration. So they're not saying they're bad. They're not saying you shouldn't get rid of them. They're saying, well, like, the people will I collaborate. I would keep a dependency in place for the sake of collaboration. Sure. I would rather have collaboration across um, very distinct service boundaries. Yeah. Um and so if I need a dependency to foster collaboration, I've just I've got two problems. I got yeah, a collaboration yeah. problem and I have a dependency problem. And, you know, and it's like and, you know, you get this argument that, you know, some dependencies are just necessary. Yeah. But but I do think that this idea of runtime versus build time, interdependence versus dependence versus codependence. Yeah. Like, I think there's something in that metaphor, too, because because, yes, it's like there are inevitable relationships between objects and complex systems. Okay. That is unavoidable. 
that is different than the kind of the runtime dependencies, excuse me, build time dependencies that we're talking about. Like, like, like we self-impose dependencies all the time. Like we make things connect via requirement that don't have to connect if we just thought about the requirements differently. We introduce dependencies between teams when we do simple things like share QA people between two teams, right? And right. I know if we're agile, it's like maybe we don't need dedicated QA. We're all doing testing on our own. I get it, right? I'm not being dogmatic. In reality, most organizations have QA people, right? So it's like if I'm, if I'm putting QA people on both teams versus having a shared QA component, I've created a dependency organizationally. Sure. Right? If I've, if I've um, you know, separated the software by layer and nothing can be delivered, not even stubbed out or toggled on and off, it all has to be delivered and tested simultaneously, then then I've created a dependency that I don't believe any gain in collaboration would be worth the cost of that dependency in terms of my business operations, right? All right. So, so I'm really impressed with ChatGBT's ability to give me a thoughtful response, but I would suggest that AI has not added anything to the conversation at this point. <laughs> Stop so. bringing its game. All right. <laughs> yeah. Screw you, ChatGPT. Mike 2, ChatGPT 0 so far. We'll see. All right, I got two questions for you. Okay, shoot, shoot. Two totally unrelated random questions that have no bearing on what we're talking about. First album you ever bought with your own money? And was it an album or was it a cassette? It was a cassette for sure, right? Um, Like I kind of – like I turned like 12, 13 – like right as cassettes were coming out. Right. So like my dad had albums and they were all over my house, but that was never like albums were never a thing, ever a thing. Not a thing. Okay. Um, the first whole album, I can't remember if I paid for it myself, honestly, but the first whole album that I can remember having was Def Leppard's Pyromania. All right. That came out, I think in 83, maybe 82, but I got it in 83. Pretty sure. Okay. Um, I, I still am. I, I kind of drifted away from Def Leppard for a long time, but I kind of reconnected with their older music um, about five years ago. Okay. And I've seen them. They're fen- phenomenal in concert. I'd go see them any. All right. Um, and I'll also tell you, I got to tell you one side story. Yeah. So I was like 48. I was like 60 pounds overweight. And uh, Phil Collin, their guitar player, was up on stage at like 58 and uh, just ripped up there living his best life, being a rock star yeah. from a distance. He looked like he was 25 years old still. He looks old like through the face now yeah. because he's 60. Right. Um, but he's still looking pretty good. And he was like a big part of my inspiration for getting fit. And I decided wow. that I wanted to be, I decided I wanted to be a really fit 60 year old. And All so right. I did it like 10 years ahead of schedule. So, so now you got, you just get, yeah. get fat again before you turn yeah, 60. That's not going to happen. I refuse <laughs> to get fat again. Um, All right. Wait. I got to tell you one other thing. I got to tell you the first, CD I ever had. Yeah. Was Driving and Crying, Fly Me Courageous. Wow. All right. My, my wife now, she was my, I was dating her at the time. I didn't pay for that with my own money either. There's a pattern here, I guess. Um, <laughs> she bought it for me for my birthday and it gave me a, nice. a little headphone CD player to go with it. So that was pretty nice. Cool. Still one of my favorite albums. I love that album. So, All right. Now, yeah. guitar solo that made you want to pick up a guitar or a song that made you want to pick up a guitar. What's the what's the song that made you go? I have to get a guitar now. The one that immediately comes to mind, and it was probably a function of of my age at the time and the music that I was interested in, 
um, would have been Judas Priest, You Have Another Thing Coming. Wow. Like even to this day, that era of Judas Priest, a couple albums before, a couple albums after. I like the earlier stuff. I even like the later stuff. I still I still listen to Judas Priest sometimes. But man, like that song moved me when I was a wow. kid. Like I just like loved it. And and to this day, that guitar duo between Glenn Tipton and KK Downing, um, back in this this library. Morass of guitars. Of guitars. I have a Marshall half stack and a 67 reissue Heritage Cherry Flying V that I got so I could be KK Downing. Now, I did it when I was like 36. Did you get the leather too? Got the whole outfit going? I used to to wear all the stuff, studs on the shoulders and wristbands. I was like, I was kind of one of those crazy heavy metal kids. But um, I had long hair back when I was in high school, like literally down to here, long hair. Like my high school picture is pretty funny. Um, and I tried to convince my mom to let me bleach my hair so I could be like KK Downing. And, um, she said, you can have long hair. I don't care. You're not bleaching your hair. And I'm like, and she's like, you'll regret it. And yeah. she was right. And I'm glad I didn't do that. So. All right. Yeah. That was excellent. Well, yeah. thank you. Yeah, cool, cool. I, I got answers, man. This I got answers good. and I'm an open book. Good stuff. So yeah. It's all good. Yeah. All right. Thank you, sir. Good have a good weekend. Yeah. You yeah. too, bud. Thank you. Bye.